Daniel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Scripture says, In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, so for those who are with us in the series, we've now gone back in time a little bit, back to Belshazzar, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven, heaven stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being, and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear. It was raised up on one side. Some people think that means it was like about to strike or something like that. And it had three tusks in, it, in its mouth. Literally, the Hebrew says three ribs that are coming up through its mouth. It's, it's a bizarre, meant to be a distorted beast among its teeth. And it was told, arise, devour many bodies. After this, I watched another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that had preceded it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns when another horn appeared, a little one, coming up from among them. To make room for it, three of the earlier horns were plucked up by the roots. There were eyes like human eyes in this horn and a mouth speaking arrogantly. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking, and as I watched, the beast was put to death. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, more literally in Hebrew, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancient one and was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me, and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this, so he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth, but the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever." Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and concerning the other horn, which came up to make room for three of them which fell out, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly and that seemed greater than the others. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones, was prevailing over them, until the ancient one came. Then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. This is what he said. As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth that shall be different from all the other kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. 
This one shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, shall wear out the holy ones of the Most High, and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. And they shall be given into his power for a time, two times, and half a time. Then the Lord shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here the account ends. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly terrified me, and my face turned pale, but I kept the matter in mind. There's no interpreting Daniel 7 through 12 without leaning on some pretty heavy presuppositions. And the most common presupposition surrounding these chapters from most who read them is that Daniel was deliberately writing to and about his own time. So that's what you'll find in most commentaries if you were to read them. And so it's common either to associate the four kingdoms that keep repeating in these concluding chapters of Daniel either as four kings or as a series of kings spanning the Babylonian Empire to the Greek Empire. For those who are certain prophets like Daniel only wrote to or about their own time period, it's impossible for them to believe that Daniel saw any further than Greece. And in the wake of the Maccabean Revolt, and if you don't know that language, there are two books in the books that were written between the First and the New Testament called the Apocrypha. There are two books, First and Second Maccabees, that tell the story. In the wake of that revolt that's described there, the Maccabean Revolt happened in 167 to 160 B.C. Most of Daniel's prophecies have been seen as being fulfilled by the time of the Greek king Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. The commentator that I read assumed him to be the tiny horn in the passage. Now, my own understanding of prophecy, I suppose, is a bit more traditional. You might even call it pre-critical, which means before the Age of Enlightenment in Europe, prior to the 1500s and the Enlightenment and all that stuff. My presupposition is that God speaks to prophets whatever he wills. And what he speaks may be primarily for them and their contemporaries, or it may be primarily for a people far distant. That's up to the Lord. And I think when we read passages like this, we have to look at the whole canon of Scripture to understand its meaning. That's what I'm going to try and do today. Now, even with saying that, I think I would be leaning towards the idea that Daniel's prophecies have come and gone, that they've all been fulfilled. That would probably be my inclination, if not for Jesus, and if not for the New Testament. Jesus, though, and we'll talk about this passage later, calls us back to this chapter of Daniel. Some of you recognized it. When one like a son of man received authority, Jesus quotes from that passage in the New Testament, suggesting that it was to be fulfilled in him. And the book of Revelation expands on Daniel's prophecies here and gives them cosmic scope in the book of Revelation if you've read it. And so because of that, I suspect Daniel's prophecies are not finished. The truth of prophecy in the scriptures is that God sometimes speaks through prophets of times far distant from where they lived for the sake of their people, but also for the sake of the future. And that's why the Jewish people wrote down the scriptures so that future generations could read them. Much of what's in the scriptures is both for the time and for the future. The presupposition that I'm battling back and forth with 
is that most who read the Bible don't really believe in prophets or in prophetic oracles. I don't share that presupposition. So because of that, I'm willing to entertain options that those who disavow those things cannot entertain. And that might explain the difference you're going to hear from me. Today, I want to be frank with you about the interpretation of these verses that's been on my heart, not just in the last week. This has been a passage that's been on my heart for years now. I'm going to share with you what I think is there. I believe that the Lord shared these visions with Daniel for two purposes. First, I believe the Lord wanted Daniel to appreciate the way in which the events of his own time fit into the larger cycle of history. And so the title of the sermon today is The Big Picture. And I really think that's what this vision is. It's about the big picture of world history. And Daniel's living at a time where he was despairing, as all of his people were, about their time in history. And he, in order to speak to people a word of encouragement, you have to give them a big picture. And I think that's what's happening here. Second, I believe that God wanted to give the people of Israel through Daniel not just a sense of their place in the larger story, but the actual plot line of the larger story that God is building so that they could take courage in how they were to live in their time based on what they knew was yet to come. And I suspect that those same purposes can be fulfilled in us too. It's probably here for us for the same reasons. As we reflect upon this vision of Daniel, we're going to consider, first, the shape of these beasts. We'll talk about that. Second, the sequence of these kingdoms that are being prophesied. Third, the singularity of this fourth kingdom and what makes it unique. And finally, we'll conclude by talking about the Son of Man. And what I'm going to try to do for us all today is place us on the the map. Where are we? We know where Daniel is, and I'll indicate where he is in these visions. But where are we? We'll talk about that too. So look back at chapter 7 of Daniel, verse 1. In the first year of King Belshazzar of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream. I, Daniel, saw in my vision by night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So we've talked about what the seas represent, what the waters represent many, many times here in the church. They represent chaos. They represent disorder. So these beasts are coming out of the chaos. They're coming out of the nothingness. You remember when God first created, the earth was, the Hebrew word, the Hebrew phrase is tohu vavohu. Tohu vavohu means formless and empty, chaotic. That's the way everything was. It was all water. And then out of that, God spoke and he said, let there be light. And he separated light from darkness. And he said, Let's separate the water from the water and create the heavens and let's separate. You remember the story, but it all begins with that chaos. So what he sees are four beasts coming out of the chaos. That's important. And now we'll talk about the shape of these beasts and what's probably implied here. So verse four, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I watched, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a human being and a human mind was given to it. Another beast appeared, a second one that looked like a bear, raised up on one side, had three ribs or tusks coming out of its mouth among its teeth, and was told, Arise, devour many bodies. After this, I watched another appeared like a leopard. The beast had four wings of a bird on its back and four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the visions by night a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth and was devouring, breaking in pieces and stamping what was left with its feet was different from all the beasts that preceded it and it had ten horns 
the blending of attributes, when, when a, a creature is described and it has various animal attributes all being brought together, it's used to describe spiritual beings. Here are two passages. I'm not going to read them, but you could look them up on your own. Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapter 1. Both of them describe the spiritual beings in God's throne room as having various parts of different animals. They, it looks like this, but it also has this, but it also had something that looked like this. My suspicion is that Daniel is seeing the spiritual realities behind these kingdoms that are rising up. And I think that's why they're described in this way. And one thing we don't often live in awareness of, especially today in our modern scientific materialistic worldview of the West, is that behind the nations of the earth there are also spiritual beings. And I think what Daniel is seeing here are the spiritual beings behind the kingdoms that are coming. And that's why they're described in this strange way. Whether the shape of those creatures, though, is meant to indicate godlessness, because they certainly are godless nations, or whether or not we're talking about the spiritual forces, which is what I think that's behind them, God wants Daniel to be aware of them and the way their dominion is to be understood in the light of the coming kingdom of God. That's the heart of this. So that's the shape of these animals. Let's look at the sequence of the kingdoms, the order in which they would come. This is verse, I'm, I'm jumping around a little because I want to read the whole passage again, but I think verse 15 and following of Daniel 7 will be helpful here. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was troubled within me and the visions of my head terrified me. I approached one of the attendants to ask him the truth concerning all this, so he said that he would disclose to me the interpretation of the matter. And here in verse 17 and 18 is the interpretation offered. Daniel asked more questions, so we get more later, but this is it. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. You remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of a statue that had different parts made of different metals. The head was made of gold, the arms and chest of silver, then the, the, the loins and the flanks of bronze, and then legs of iron with feet iron mixed with clay. That's what he saw in his vision. And Daniel basically tells him the same thing the angel tells Daniel. These are four kingdoms. In that dream, I indicated to you that I follow the interpretive line that this is how they should be designated. The gold is the Babylonian Empire. The silver was the Persian Empire. The bronze is the Greek Empire. The iron is the Roman Empire. And I suggested in that sermon that the iron mixed with clay in the feet is Europe, the Roman Empire after its fall, where the iron of Rome still existed in terms of its philosophies and its values, but it was mixed together with clay of these other nations, and it became what we know as colonial Europe and now as the West. And I believe those same correspondences continue here in Daniel 7. So here they are. The lion with eagle's wings, again, is Babylon. That was the golden head in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. The bear with the three tusks is Persia. That was the silver. The leopard with the four wings and the four heads is Greece. That represents the bronze in Nebuchadnezzar's statue. And the fourth, fourth beast with iron teeth is Rome. Now, why would God want to share this information 
with the people of Israel so far in advance. Because at Daniel, Daniel claims to be there in exile, and I would take that. That's in the 500s B.C. Rome isn't going to come till 63 B.C. Why would God want to share this information with the people of Israel so far in advance? It seems to me that this prophecy is part of Israel's preparation for the coming of its Messiah, for the coming of Jesus. And as we'll discuss momentarily, Jesus' use of the name Son of Man most likely comes from this very passage in Daniel 7. This prophecy does a couple of things. For the Jewish exiles of Daniel's day, it helps them to place their experiences on the larger map of world history. Living in exile in Babylon probably felt as far from the kingdom of God as any place on earth for the Jewish people. And it was probably great encouragement through Daniel for them to hear that the kingdom was still coming. But it does something else too. By giving Daniel a glimpse of the larger picture, these prophecies probably also deflated him as much as they encouraged him. They're deflating because it's clear that the coming of the kingdom of God was still a long way off. Daniel's only living here under Belshazzar in the first of these kingdoms. So it's a long way off. However, they were encouraging because the rising of these wicked kingdoms were steps on the road to the restoration of Israel despite what the contemporary evidence seemed to demonstrate. And I think they still serve similar functions for people of faith today. Knowing where we are on the map of world history is essentially important to knowing where to put your loyalty, how to live out your faith and your time. I'm going to try and put us on the map today. Let's talk about this fourth kingdom associated with Rome. And in the sermon a few weeks back, I also indicated, and I want this to be in your mind, whether you agreed with it or not, that Rome still is with us, that we are living in the remains of the Roman Empire. That most of what you and I believe, even the way our government is structured in America and the governments in Europe, are cobbled together values and philosophies from Rome, put to contemporary use. Rome is still with us. I suggested that. It's important that you remember that that's what I think. Let's think about the singularity of this fourth kingdom. I think if we turn to verse 19 in chapter 7, we'll get enough. Then I desired to know the truth concerning the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and concerning the ten horns that were on its head, and concerning the other horn, which came up to make room, for which three of them fell out, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke arrogantly, and that seemed greater than the others. As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones, was prevailing over them, Till the ancient one came, then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High, and the time arrived when the holy ones gained possession of the kingdom. Now obviously, the focus of this vision in chapter 7 for Daniel is this fourth beast. He's, he's obsessed with it. It gets most of the dialogue. The fourth kingdom in Nebuchadnezzar's vision was also strange because it had two permutations. It had the legs of iron and then it had those feet mixed with iron and clay. So it was unique even in Nebuchadnezzar's. But Daniel's much more concerned about it. Daniel recognizes that there's something different about this fourth kingdom with all its horns and the strange little horn and its seeming capacity to gain victory over the holy ones. That's probably what bothered him the most. And it should bother us too. There are several indications in this passage that Daniel was seeing a spiritual vision of Rome hundreds of years before the Roman Empire was even a glimmer on the world stage. The most obvious evidence for that is right here in front of you in the text. 
because it says that the Son of Man would receive his dominion while the fourth beast was reigning. We know that Son of Man is Jesus, and we know Rome was in power when he came. First time, I think it'll still be in power in the second in a different way. But the detail of the many horns associated with many permutations of this kingdom and its direct assault against the holy ones of God seems to be seen by the New Testament authors as matching perfectly the historical Roman Empire and its treatment both of the Jewish people and of the Christians. Google Nero's persecution and Diocletian's persecution. You'll know all you need to know about what Rome did to the church. Let's look at Mark chapter 14. I want you to hear the words of Jesus. And now that you know Daniel 7 better, I think you'll hear what I'm seeing. Mark chapter 14, verse 60. This is Jesus' a trial before the Jewish leaders. The high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer? What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? All of them condemned him as deserving death. This fourth beast and Jesus' conquest of it is actually what the book of Revelation is all about. It's at center stage there. And there's little doubt that for the Apostle John who wrote Revelation, Rome was the beast. This is in Revelation chapter 12, verse 18. Listen to the correspondence with Daniel 7. Then the dragon took his stand on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea having ten horns, seven heads, and on its horn were ten diadems, and on its heads were blasphemous names. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And the dragon gave its power in his throne and great authority to it. One of its heads seemed to have received a death blow, but its mortal wound had been healed. In amazement, the whole earth followed the beast. They worshipped the dragon, that's Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? This is the fourth beast, and it is the beast of Revelation. The strangeness of the fourth beast also corresponds with the strangeness of Jesus' coming. Quite surprisingly, Jesus was to come twice, not only once. Daniel did not see that. It's not there in his vision. But it becomes clear in the New Testament that the day of the Lord, the day that Daniel saw in chapter 7, and the day that Revelation is concerned with, is a very long day. God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus at dusk of the day of the Lord, and he'll come again at its dawning. This fourth, fourth beast was to be in power throughout that time, and that has proven to be true. Rome was in power when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Rome is still in power. Her philosophies and ideologies, which combined those European kingdoms which preceded Rome, still married together with the West as iron is mixed with clay. And even more, it seems to me that the little horn 
that last kingdom that rises up, remember we're talking about philosophies and ideologies, that last little kingdom I think is America, that horn, or at least the ideology that gave birth to it, because it displaced three other vying ways of ruling. The British, who we beat in the Revolutionary War, the French, French Revolution and all of that, which we purchased some of our land from, and then the Spanish. Three were uprooted so one could rise. Seems to me that's us, and boy have we ever spoken arrogant words. I think we're the little horn. So now let's talk about the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, we're going to go back to verse 9. As I watched, thrones were set in place, and an ancient one took his throne. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the noise of the arrogant words that the horn was speaking. And as I watched, the beast was put to death and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being, like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. That's what Jesus said, right? They would see. And he came to the ancient one who was presented before him. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. Now there's no doubt that the New Testament authors saw Jesus as the fulfillment of that prophecy. Jesus himself indicated that in the passage from Mark that we read together. Daniel tells us that the last beast will be judged. And then judgment will be laid down on all the previous kingdoms that this final one had supplanted. That description that Daniel saw, it's in Revelation as well. And it's associated with the coming of Jesus in the same way. It's Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels, these are the spiritual beings I was talking about, fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels, this is the Nachash, the serpent, and his angels fought back, but they were defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Those are the spiritual forces that joined him, remember? Then I heard a loud voice in heaven proclaiming, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our comrades has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. But they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they did not cling to life even in the face of death. Rejoice then, you heavens, and those who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great wrath because he knows that his time is short. In the book of Revelation, the the first coming of Jesus in which he lived amongst us and he was crucified and he died and he rose from the dead and ascended to the majesty, that was the death knell for the spiritual forces of evil. Jesus took the throne just as Daniel foresaw that he would and he threw those spiritual forces out. The Nachash and his forces no longer have any access to the throne room of God because Jesus is enthroned. But then they come to the earth and everything after that that we've been living since the ascension of Jesus to today is what Revelation was. Woe to the people of the earth. For Satan has gone down to them. The devil 
with great wrath because he knows his time is short. That's the period in which you and I live. And one day Jesus will take the throne that's in the heavens and he will bring it to the earth and that's the final judgment. Daniel saw that all compressed into one vision. We know that it's a long gap between his coming into that throne room and his coming to the earth to bring all things under subjection. The events of Daniel's vision have been and will be fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus. We live in that gap created between his ascension ceremony and his arrival on earth. So where are we? Rome has had many judgments. It's a very strange kingdom. It ruled the entire known world in Jesus' day. But it did not fully fulfill the idea of crushing every nation on earth the way that it was prophesied by Daniel. Not in Rome's first permutation. The Roman Empire lasted a thousand years. Then when it fell, it didn't fall completely. The Roman Republic, which is how it started, eventually became the Roman Empire, which then became the Holy Roman Empire. The church took it over and ran it for a long time in Europe with not great effect. And then in the rubble of that became colonial Europe, which took over the entire earth during the colonial period, conquered every known nation on earth, just as Daniel prophesied Rome would. But it did it, not as the Roman Empire, but as iron mixed with clay. That eventually became the European Union. And like a small horn set apart, what Europe has always called the Great American Experiment, attempted to put all the best ideas of the European Enlightenment, the Roman teachings, the Greek teachings, all the teachings of the kingdoms that had come before us, and put them all together in one polity, in effect creating a new Babel that was not one nation, but many nations brought back together. And it seems that that is that final horn. Whether this is the last permutation of Rome, no one knows but God himself. Rome has had many resurrections because God is merciful. He has extended the life of this thing for his mercy, and who knows how far his mercy will go. But we are living at the very end of what Daniel saw. The very end. We must all be aware of where we live and where we are on the wheel of history. And this knowledge has to guide us. Because what Daniel saw is that only the Messiah, only the one who had been given the authority by God could establish the kingdom of God that will never be defeated. So every other nation that rises is a false messiah. And that's what the New Testament means by the Antichrist. The one who would present itself as Jesus on earth. Now the Roman Catholic Church did that. For a while the Pope was the vicar of Christ. To obey the church was to obey. I think the church becomes the harlot of revelation in those prophecies because the church has presented itself as Jesus on earth. But nations have said this to us too. In the fall of the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, in the splintering of the Protestant Reformation, 
We have found nation after nation telling us that they are the Savior, that they will rescue us, that they are God on earth, that God is with them, that they will be the Savior, that they will keep us safe, that they will make us prosperous, that they will bring the kingdom of God if we just put our trust in them. And you live in a nation that has effectively communicated that greater than any nation that has ever lived. But who are these beasts aligned with? The Messiah or the Nachash, the serpent? It's the serpent that gives the beast its power. So where should your loyalties lie? Do we revolt? Of course not, because the New Testament is full of teachings about how to live in enemy territory, and it's about submission, and it's about meekness, and it's about being good citizens, and never disobeying God, but submitting to the ruling authorities as best as we can. The New Testament is full of that. Romans chapter 13, the entire book of 1 Peter. You can read those passages. It's not a revolutionary text. It's a text about teaching us how to accept the fact that we live in occupied territory, that we live amongst the spiritual forces of evil who are trying to deceive the world and we live in that final permutation of the roman empire that has gone to war against the holy ones of god by trying to make us change our loyalty from jesus to them how do you live in these days you live loyal to jesus this last permutation of the Roman Empire has been its most insidious because it has not captured the bodies of the people of God. It has captured their souls. It has captured their spirits. And they have come to worship Jesus in the name of the beast. This is the greatest deception ever purported. And boy, the spiritual forces of evil have plied their trade well. They don't even show themselves anymore in the West. We don't even believe in supernatural things. They hide completely from us. And they make us believe they don't even exist. The only way they show themselves is through the ideas and the thoughts of our head, the desires of our heart, and who knows, maybe alien conspiracy theories. I don't know. But they hide from us. Because their greatest deception is to make you believe that all you have are the kingdoms of the earth. And whatever God is going to do on earth will have to be done through them. And once they have you believing that, they can hide because they have you. But there's time. There's time for us to repent of this. It's time for us to be free of it. Like a lamb before its shearers was silent so he did not open his mouth. He emptied himself and took the form of a servant and emptied himself unto death. This is our king. We must look like him.